As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father, always uh, we should come, and I pray we do come to your word with great expectancy. It's like the expectancy of a starving person looking for and sitting down at a meal. We're that way, as the scriptures say, the deer pant, we're like the deer that pants by the water. And so we pray that you would fill us with your word. It would be life to us. Enable us to anticipate hearing individually and corporately this morning from you who speak. God, for here we are, your servants, and we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Psalm 119, verse 65. Psalm 119, verse 65. This is the word of the Lord. Through verse 72. You have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear with lies, but but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I'm skipping a bit. As you can see, we've taken up the first stanza of this psalm, the second stanza, and the fourth. This sounds like a Baptist hymn sing. We always leave out the third stanza. You've got to be old and be well church to get that one. But uh, that's just how it goes. But we're moving ahead now to this letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Tet. So we've taken up Olive and Bait and uh, uh, Dolph, and now we take up Tet. And I, I put it that way, as you know, because this is an acrostic psalm. So if you're reading this in Hebrew, every, every uh, first letter of each first word in each sentence begin with this letter, Tet. So it's very well crafted, very thoughtfully put it up together. And remember, we're taking up Psalm 119 because we're in this season the church calls Lent, which is this time of thinking through the life and passion of Jesus. And we know uh, because this season for us begins with Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, we know that Jesus lived, even Jesus lived, utterly and completely dependent on the word of God. Even against Satan, even against this temptation. Uh, and so much so that he would say that, that I've come to do the will of my father. That is to obey him. And so for us then we want to think about taking up this, this, this word of God. 
And in the first stanza, we, we realize that, that the psalmist lays out the fact that God's in covenant with his people and his people are to live blameless before him, that is faithful to his covenant, faithful to his word, and thus live this life of blamelessness, not sinlessness, but faithfulness to God's word. And the psalmist then begins to think that through and meditate upon what that, what that means. And, and he realizes then that, that, that he needs to pray that God would teach him. He would teach him and he commits himself to live steadfastly according to God's word that he would even keep it, he says. And then he began, the second stanza tells us, even as a young man, because he realized the value of the word of God. It was this word of God that would give him life. It was this word of God that would keep him from sin, that would enable him to walk faithfully and blamelessly, you see. And, and so he stored it in his heart because it was a great treasure, nothing more valuable than the word of God, because it would work in him. And thus he would uh, meditate on it. Day and night, that he would think about it, that it would always be in his mind, you see. And thus he would fix his eyes upon the ways of God and delight in God's statutes. And he lived real life. We realized in the last stanza that we took up that, that he knew real life, that is, he knew real sorrow, so much so that he would use the expression that his soul, his life, was clinging to the dust that his soul was melting away, if you will, with sorrow. So he understood it. He really got it. And then so much of his sorrow and so much of this clinging to the dust, feeling as if he was going to die and discouragement was, was because he lived in a world that was alien to him because there were those who didn't love the word of God and those who came against him. And, and so he looked at the world. And he said, this isn't the world as it should be. This isn't the world that I long for. He perhaps even knew this isn't the world that is to come. And, and, and so in the midst of that, his soul was filled with sorrow. And so how did he deal with that? Well, he laid out his life before the Lord. And then he committed his way. He prayed that God would teach him his statutes to enable him to understand the ways of God. And so he said, oh, Choose the way of faithfulness. I'll cling to your testimonies, not my own or not the testimonies of the world. And I'll run the way of your commandments. And so he committed himself to follow after the Lord. And he could do that because God, he knew, enlarged his heart, enabled him. But, but now we get in this particular stanza how he understood his life, even his life in that kind of of difficulty, and, and this isn't an abstract thing for him. This is a very personal thing for him, and it's a very personal thing for us as well. He isn't just talking here just in sort of abstract theological terms. He's saying, no, this is real in the context of my life. This is how I understand life. This is how God has taught me to understand life. So this is how, you see, I, I live. Um, and, and, and so he doesn't trivialize his pain. He doesn't trivialize his sorrows. He doesn't trivialize the difficulties, the affliction, as he puts it, that he's under. But he sees it through, he understands it through the word of God. He understands it through who God is, you see. 
Well, his trouble seemed devastating. I mean, how else can you describe it that other than devastating when he says, my soul clings to the dust, my soul melts away with sorrow. It's devastating to him, but, but yet he knows it's not beyond the reach of the transforming power of the word of God uh, to work in him. He realizes that he's growing. He's realizing that he's maturing, you see, in the midst of all of this. Because, you see, this passage particularly is to be an encouragement to us. We shouldn't read a passage like this and think, well, that's not me. Uh, why isn't it me? Oh, you could ask that. But, but then you could realize what God is saying to you. No, no, this is who you are. If you're one of mine, this is true for you. Receive it. This is true for you. Embrace it. This is true for you. It will transform your heart. Believe it. See, this is to be an encouragement uh, to us. Uh, and, and if I could say it this way too, this is rather what I would call a Monday morning testimony. You know the expression of Monday morning quarterback. On Monday, the game on Sunday is very clear. Everybody understands what every play should have been but wasn't. Well, this is a reflection. This is the psalmist looking at his life and he's saying, oh, I see it, you see. And he no doubt got glimpses of it in the midst of it as we do. But, but this is kind of a Monday morning testimony. He's looking back and he's saying, oh, I see it now. I see what was taking place. I want you to know that. So that while it's working in your life, while you're going through it, and you might not be able to see it, I want you to see it through this word. And I want you to trust it. This is what's really happening. Live your life through this lens. This is... What will really, what will really help you? And, and, and there are two primary things that help him. Number one is he knows something about God. And he knows something about the word of God. Those two things. He knows something about God and he knows something about the word of God. Number one, he knows that God is good. And number two, he knows that the word of God is more precious than anything else. That he could have for himself. And he knows of, that God is good. It's fascinating, just just in the structure of this psalm, forgive what might sound like an academic expression or, or analysis to you, but one of the interesting things about this psalm is not only is it an acrostic psalm so that every sentence in this particular uh, stanza begins with the Hebrew letter tet, but unlike most of the other ones, um, five of the verses all begin with the Hebrew word for good. For instance, the other stanzas, there were different words that started with that letter of the alphabet. In this one, they all begin with the, the Hebrew letter tet, but it's the word tov in Hebrew that means good. And five of the verses begin there. If I could translate this, these verses very, very um, literally, verse 65 would go something like, Good, you have dealt with me, or good, you have done to me, your servant. And then verse 66 would be, good judgment and knowledge teach me. Sounds a little like Yoda. Um, verse 68, um, good you are and good you do. Um, verse 71, uh, Good for me it was that I was afflicted. Verse 72. Good is the law of your mouth. 
to me than thousands of gold silver pieces. So uh, that's the sense of it. So, so it, it's not hard to know what the psalmist is trying to get to us. There's something about goodness here. And first and foremost, about the goodness of God that then translates into goodness to us. The goodness of God that translates by his good word into goodness or good uh, to us. So verse 68, primarily he begins, and this is kind of the heart of it. He says, you are good and you you do good. That's That's the whole uh, point of it. Because he's able to understand his affliction as he does in verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. And he's able to understand his affliction that way because he knows that God is good. Surely he knows this. I mean, surely we know it from other other psalms, for instance. The psalmists uh, um, uh, go on and on about the goodness of God. For instance, in Psalm 25, verse 8, we have it. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way God's goodness is manifested by his grace to sinners. That he instructs them in his way. Psalm uh, 86 and uh, Verse 5, we have this. It says, For you, are, you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Again, this goodness of God uh, uh, is seen in his grace to sinners as he, as he forgives. Then a number of psalms, like Psalm 118 and Psalm 106 and 107 and 136, begin with this expression, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures uh, forever. That it does, of course. Even in the call to worship that we had this morning from Psalm 100, the reason that we chose that one, verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness continues uh, throughout all generations. That's the sense of it. But there's something very special here too, in that the goodness, good, is is an in a sense, the very name of God. Uh, you remember that when the Israelites were moving during the time of the Exodus and as they were uh, leaving uh, uh, Mount Sinai or at Mount Sinai, Moses um, was troubled and he asked God to show him uh, his glory, that his presence would go with him. So in Exodus 33, verse 17, we have this. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And, and, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. Uh, you see, he says, he says I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pronounce my name to you, the Lord I am. I'm going to show you who I am. And he says, I'll make all my goodness. This is who I am. I'll make all my goodness go before you. And then in verse 34, you might remember God said, you know, you can't really see me. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You can only see me in the, from the back. So verse 6 in chapter 34 says, And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the children's children to the third and fourth uh, generation. He's essentially saying, everything I am and everything that I do is good. 
This is my goodness. My goodness is my mercy. My goodness is my grace. My goodness is my patience. My goodness is my steadfast love. My goodness is seen in faithfulness. My goodness is, 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 is uh, seen in forgiving. My goodness is seen in my justice. Everything about God is good. And so the psalmist knew that God is, is really good. And it isn't that he's simply good to all. In, in one sense, he really is good to all. But he's particularly good to his own. J.I. Packer writes it like this in a book I've quoted numerous times over the years before called Knowing God, one that uh, should be on your reading list with a check mark by it that you've already read it, but if you haven't, then you should read it. This is from a marvelous chapter called Goodness and Severity. Not too many people put those words together. But the Bible does. So Packer does as well. And he's speaking here just about the goodness of God. And he says, Within the cluster of God's moral perfections, there is one in particular to which the term goodness points. The quality which God specially singled out from the whole when proclaiming all his goodness to Moses. He spoke of himself as abundant in goodness and truth. Exodus 34, 6, we just read that. This is the quality of generosity. Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve but constantly goes beyond it. That's the goodness of God. That's the generosity of God. That's the contrast very often between God's generosity and ours. Ours often has mercenary motives when we give, or it does depend upon the worthiness of the recipient. But the good news for us is that God's goodness goes to those who don't deserve it, and it's abundant. And he puts it like this. Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. Now, Packer's British. So for him, happy means perhaps something different because British people aren't really happy, happy. Right? Uh, What he means covenantally, if I could correct him, uh, and I do so hesitantly, would be blessed, you see. To bless them. Uh, That is, to give them what they need for their real good. Generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. It's the quality which determines how all God's other excellencies are to be displayed. You see, God is abundant in goodness. um, uh, Overflowing with generosity. Uh, Theologians, and he puts up the Reform School, that is our tradition, uses the New Testament word grace to cover every act of divine generosity of whatever kind and hence distinguish between the common grace of creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life and the special grace manifested in the economy of salvation. That is, the point of the contrast between common and special being that all benefit from the former, but not all are touched by the latter. What he means by that is that God is, in a, in a very real sense, good to all by way of creation and preservation of the earth. In fact, he even says that he's, 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 he loves his enemies because he's good to even his enemies. And he lets the, the, the sun shine and the rain fall 
on the just and the unjust, you see. But there is something special. Or, no, let me put it this way. There's a special people who receive his grace in all things, his goodness in all things, in all measures. And that group of people is his own, his covenantal people, the people called by his name. So he put it this way. He says, the biblical way of putting this distinction would be to say, God is good to all in some ways and to some in all ways. So to the believer, God is good to us in all ways. So we can trust him. We can trust his goodness. Not not everybody believes that. I mean, there's this sense, you see, that if God is really good, he can't really be sovereign. And if God is sovereign, he can't really be good. By that, people mean, well, we know that God is sovereign because he's God. He rules and reigns over all things. He ordains all things that come to pass. And so if he's sovereign, how can he be good? Because he seems to tolerate evil. Even ordain it to come to pass. And if he's good, he can't be sovereign. Because if he's really good, then, then why would he ordain evil and suffering and all of that. The Bible says, no, 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 God is good. And God is sovereign. I don't have time to go through all the different ways philosophers and theologians have tried to reconcile. There's some have simply said, well, God is, is good. And therefore, he empathizes and sympathizes with us. He's compassionate towards us. He, he just can't change the way things are. Of course, the Bible knows none of that. And some said that, well, perhaps it is that that God has a limited omniscience, which is an oxymoron, of course. That he can only know what can be known and he can't know the future because the future is dependent upon decisions that individuals will make. Therefore, in a real sense, he does the best he can given the situation. And again, the Bible knows none of that as well, because the Bible knows that God is omniscient, sees the end from the beginning, sees all things. Some deal with the situation by just claiming that there is no God, and so they eliminate the dilemma. It doesn't really matter. Evil just is. I don't see how that can be comforting or in any way really helpful. Uh, But the psalmist says, no, 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 he's... He's good, even though and even as he is sovereign over all things. Sometimes I wonder, though, even if those aren't our issues, even if we go, okay, I get that, if we're able to really embrace the goodness of God. Sometimes we we, we look at our lives and, and, and it feels like to us that God is punishing us. The difficulties we go through, we say, well, we must be under his, his anger and his wrath in some way. And he says, no, no, you need to understand how I operate. God says, how I operate with my children. I'm your heavenly father. Judgment has already been poured out on Jesus. My wrath has already been poured out on my son. So, so now I'm free to forgive and, and, and to, to love you and discipline you. You see, the way the psalmist puts it, he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but, but now I keep 
your word that, that sounds so much like the author of, of Hebrews as he lays out life for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. He writes, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjects to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's true, isn't it? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those, you see, who've been trained by it. Yes, that's true. You see, this is discipline to us. We know that what we're going through at the moment may or may not have anything to do with the particulars of our lives. We, we see it, for instance, remember in John chapter 9, there was a man born blind, and, and the disciples uh, sort of spouting the theology of the day looked at this man who was blind from birth, and he said to, they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus I think he scratched his head when he said this, but don't, 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 don't quote me on that. I think he just says, well, neither, you know. Neither. This occurred so that the mighty works of God would be known. We, we know that to be the tr- case uh, for Job, for instance, as well, right? He was a blameless man. We know the behind-the-scenes event that took place that led to all of his difficulties. So it wasn't true there. Either. In fact, I just picked up a commentary on the book of Job that's entitled, How God Treats His Friends. I haven't read it yet, but if I never read it, I've read enough. And just from the title, the psalmist would understand that. And Job would ultimately say it was good that I was afflicted. Because now I know God, you see. I know him as I would never know him otherwise. The man born blind would say, I I know him, this one now, this healer. It was good that I was born this way, he would say. You see, he knew him, this psalmist, as the good God. Even though He experienced this affliction because he realized that the affliction ultimately led, ultimately led for good. And sometimes we might even think that we're unworthy of God's goodness. So so we, we can't even imagine that he would be good to us. And there's a sense in which we go, you're right. (laughs) We are unworthy of his goodness. But his goodness is such that it's not dependent upon our worthiness. That's what makes God good in a category all by himself. We see this, for instance, in a very helpful and well-known passage in Romans in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. The apostle writes, For while we were still weak at the right time, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. We could say his goodness which is expressed in his love. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have now, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, his goodness to us isn't truncated by our unworthiness, even by, even by our sin. See, the, the, the psalmist knew his testimony is that God is good, you see. And if I could borrow from the next, from the next stanza, um, if I could find the verse, uh, there it is, the middle of verse 75, he says that in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. In your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now, now it's possible as you read through the scripture, you'll find expressions that Satan did this, or Satan led to that, or Satan, or even our own sinfulness led to this, or our own sinfulness led to that, and all that's true in ways of saying it. But, but at this point, the psalmist cuts through all that, and he says, God is faithful to his word, and his word to me is that he's going to do good to me by enabling me to walk with him and to know him. And so what I'm trusting is that God is being faithful to his word in the midst of my affliction to bring out of it exactly what God has promised me. And here's another point of that. I'm going to trust in God's wisdom. I'm going to trust that God is wise enough to know exactly what it's going to take, what exactly what is necessary for him to fulfill his purposes in me. And so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him that he is wise. Tim Keller, uh, preacher, pastor, New York City, some note these days, said this. I'm going to read this twice. Just one sentence. He says, God gives us everything we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. God gives us everything we would have asked for, dare I say, even affliction. God gives us everything we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. The point is, he's wise. Therefore, he knows what's going to bring out the best result. And he loves us, so he knows what the best result is. And he's sovereign, so he can work through all things and in every way to arrange and rearrange in such a way that this end is brought about. That's what he does. So the psalmist could say in verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant or Literally translated, good you have done to me, your servant, according to your word. He's done it, you see. He's done it like that. But there's one more thing the psalmist knows. 
that we need to know as well. And it's in verse 72. He says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You see, the end of the result of this is that uh, he said, it was good for me, verse 71, that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Um, Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, uh, the psalmist is saying, this is why it was good. It was good because now I know your statutes and now I obey you. So, So all that's... That's good. And we go, well, okay, but is it worth it? Is knowing God's statutes, knowing God, worth the affliction? The testimony of the psalmist, the inspired writer, is yes, it is. In fact, he says, the law of your mouth The instruction that comes from you, God, is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So much so that he prays in verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. Now you see, could I put it this way? You'll understand this. The danger of that prayer... (laughs) he prays it and then he next says before I was afflicted I went astray and then he says it's good for me when he prays this prayer teach me good judgment and knowledge he's saying even if it means I have to go through great difficulty because I believe in your commandments and when he says that I believe that they're more valuable than anything so so whatever it takes God in, in the course of my life for you to teach me about yourself for me to teach me these things for you to teach me how I'm to live according to your word then 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 it's worth it and so whatever that may whatever that may be C.S. Lewis once sent this to an Anglican priest who was a friend of his the Anglican priest wife was dying of cancer and he asked Lewis to pray for him. Lewis wrote back to him. He said, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do what is best for us. However, we are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. It's a realistic man. Psalmist knew that. But he said, no matter how painful it is, if you'll teach me your statutes, if you'll teach me your words, if I can understand your ways, if I can know your ways, if I can live in your ways, then all of that's worth it. It really is worth it. And so as we go through whatever it is we're going through that is described by the psalmist as being clinging to the dust and being melting away for sorrow and anything on that spectrum all the way from what might be very small to what might be very great, then we we need to understand it this way that God is at work doing good. God is at work doing good for me. God is at work. We'll see in a couple of weeks or next week that he even does good for the whole community. And we'll even see that he even does it's even good for our enemies to see this, but, but, but that for right now, he's working in us that which, is, that which is good, you see. And the psalmist knew that. That's the sweetness of Romans 8.28. And in fact, this expression, teach me good judgment, the word for judgment there uh, can be translated, teach me discernment. And the word discernment and judgment can be uh, simply translated, give me good taste. In the same way that Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What's this experience like in your mouth, if you will? How does it taste 
to you. One of the first weddings I ever did, this was back in Denver, Colorado. First weddings I ever did was uh, for a couple. The groom had been in a skiing accident and had broken his jaw and had, had essentially lost his ability to taste. Now, surprisingly, I suppose, being the guy that I am, I invited him and his fiancée for dinner one night. And I forgot to tell Karen that the guy couldn't taste anything. And so he's sitting at the table saying, smells good. It looks like it tastes good. It chews like it tastes good. And I'm laughing, thinking he's pretty, you know. And Karen is looking at me like, why are you laughing at this guy? That's not very nice. And finally, I, then I remembered I'd forgotten to tell him that he couldn't taste. But what was interesting is he told me later that after his taste buds started coming back, it was bizarre. He would bite into a pickle and taste peanut butter. And so he said, I actually became afraid then to eat because I didn't know what it was going to taste like. And I get the sense that that's true for us. That when difficulties come into our lives, we're afraid of what it might taste like. And for good reason, because the pain is pain. The sorrow is sorrow. We're not making this up. This is real. And so the psalmist prays, let me taste it, God, like you're tasting it. If there's sweetness here, let me taste the sweetness here. I'm only tasting sour. Let me taste the sweetness here in this thing. So teach me good judgment, good discernment. Give me good taste so that I can rejoice in the midst of no blessing in the midst of the situation in which I find myself. John Piper's made um, John Bunyan uh, more well-known, I suppose, than even uh, he was. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, the 17th century um, Puritan tinker. What a great power to preach. He was 12 years in prison for preaching uh, Bunyan was. And he was greatly distressed in the midst of that time, not only because he was in prison, not only because he couldn't preach, uh, but because he had to leave his family. And in those days, uh, if you left your family and went to prison, it was likely that your family would become destitute. And uh, and he had a daughter, Mary, uh, who was 10 years old when he was put into prison. So from the time he, she was 10 to the time she was 22, um, and she was blind. And again, in those days, it was even a, a great handicap. So he writes this. He says, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones, clinging to the dust. Not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because... I've often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship. I thought my blind one might go under, would break uh, my heart from pieces. But then, 
citing Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He said, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and, and felt him. Indeed, I have seen such things here as I'm persuaded I shall never while in this world be able to express being very tender to me. God hath not suffered me to be molested, to be harmed. But would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all insomuch that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble, for greater comfort's sake. He writes that in a book aptly entitled Grace Abounding to the Greatest Sinner. The goodness of God. Oh, that we might, oh, that we might know that. I don't usually buy books for just titles as I did the commentary on Job. But another one I bought just for the title because I don't actually like how the author presents his case in it. So I can't recommend the book, but I love the title. The title is Don't Waste Your Sorrows. Don't waste your sorrows. Because God is at work, you see. God is at work. Has it ever really surprised you the Friday of Holy Week is called Good Friday? I often thought about that as a kid. It didn't seem good. I mean, Jesus was killed on that day unjustly in, in, in a violent, violent kind of way. So in what sense is it good? Well, I figured it out. You know, I know in the sense in which it's good that he was afflicted. Because from his affliction, good, the ultimate good, came to the people of God. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring in the Lord's death? We're declaring the goodness of God that he afflicted his son. And good came. What was the good? Well, the glory of his son. That was good. That was the glory of Jesus to be afflicted in the way that he was. And of course, some say that the Romans afflicted and killed Jesus. And some say that the Jews afflicted and killed Jesus. And some say that it's our sin that afflicted and killed Jesus. And all that's true. But the prophet Isaiah said it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Father's work, you see that ultimately afflicted the Son. He planned it. He predestined it. He brought it about through the deeds of wicked men. Why? That good might come. It was the only way that this good could come. <laughs> and may I say, 
We can trust God's wisdom in Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the goodness in the life of Jesus, in his sovereignty in the life of Jesus. And because we see it here and because this is true, we can trust his wisdom in our lives, his goodness in our lives, his sovereignty in our lives, even in the midst of affliction. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we'd really see this. Your goodness. In your wisdom. And your ordination of all that comes to pass particularly in the lives of your people. We may know that nothing comes to us lest through you. And we can trust you. May we, with the psalmist, be able to testify that you are good and do good. That you have done good to us, your servants. And that even we can say it was good that we have been or being will be afflicted because we know that you will teach us your word, your ways, your statutes, your precepts that we would know you and that we know that there's nothing more precious more valuable than that Hmm. now I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the presence of this very one who was afflicted crucified according to your plan according to your power according to your wisdom, according to your goodness, that he might be glorified and that we, your people, might be saved. And I'll be with us, God. In Jesus' name.